Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So um, just before we come to the sermon, I think it probably appropriate that we also say uh, that this morning marks, uh, this morning, our daughter church, Redeemer Southwest, is celebrating their one-year anniversary. So one year ago this week, uh, they planted. Yeah. <clears throat> so if you, uh, if you see Jeff and Marissa... Uh, or those that went out from us that are part of that church, encourage them. Uh, get on Facebook this afternoon and tell them you love them and you're proud of them. They're doing great. Uh, but so can we stop and pray for them as well? Would that be okay? <laughs> uh, so let's, let's pray for uh, Redeemer Southwest. So Father, thank you that you um, have so, so tangibly answered uh, our prayers where we have asked you from the beginning of our church that you would make us a church, not only just one church, but a church that... Uh, by your grace, uh, plants many churches in our city. We believe our city needs churches everywhere because we want the gospel to ring out from every corner of our city. And so we thank you for sending Jeff and Marissa to us. We thank you for their heart and passion for you and for the southwest part of our city. And we thank you for the way that you have provided for them, for uh, the lives that have been changed because of their ministry there. And so on this week that they celebrate their first anniversary, we just give you thanks and we pray that you continue to abundantly bless them. Give Southwest Winter Haven into their hands. And may they see many, many more people come to know you, uh, fill, fill the seats in their meeting place, provide for their financial needs, continue to grow them uh, towards uh, your, your dreams and, and goals for them. And Father, as we think about what we want to do in the future, uh, please do continue to move among us, uh, that that might be not the, the last church we plant, but just the first in a series of many that we plant, because that's our heart and desire for you. We know you're faithful, and so we do give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City, and we are continuing this morning in a series on Psalm 23. And we've said about Psalm 23 that it is an extended argument for trusting God. And so really the theme of this whole time in Psalm 23 is, is just how we live by faith, how we trust God with our lives. Because faith, we've said, is, is more than just believing in God, it's actually believing God. It's more than just agreeing with, with certain doctrines. It's staking your life on the doctrines that you believe. It's putting your life into God's hands because of the doctrines. Faith is living your whole life in light of who God is. That your, your decisions and even your emotions, everything about you flows out of your theology. So Psalm 23 is, is practical. I've heard from many of you these sermons have been helpful to you. And man, I rejoice in that. It really does encourage me to hear that. And I think it's helpful because it's so doctrinal. It's so central. And that's why we've really, this is new for us as a church. We typically take large chunks of passages and, and spend one week on, on, you know, maybe 30 or 40 verses in the scripture. But we've, we've decided to take seven weeks on six verses because there's so much here. Uh, there's so much doctrine. There's so much there's so much good, rich theology here that can make a massive difference in your life. And so we've been looking uh, at this um, psalm for three weeks now. We come this morning to verse three. But what we've been doing, we're going to do again this morning, and that is that we've been, uh, instead of just reading one verse, we've been reciting the psalm together uh, because we're memorizing it uh, together in the month of January and February. So uh, like we've done the past couple of weeks, I'd ask if you would stand with me. That's actually un unusual for us as well. But for these weeks, I think it's a helpful practice. 
And so let's stand together and recite uh, the word of the Lord, a psalm of David, which says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may be seated. This is God's word. <clears throat> David here is meditating on God's providence. He, uh, he, keeps, he keeps saying it the same way. Look at the phrase that you see here, he leads me. This phrase keeps coming up. Have you noticed? And you see it again here in verse 3, which is kind of our focal point this morning. He leads me in paths of righteousness, David sings. And providence refers to the way God leads us through life. Christians believe that God is intimately involved in every detail of their day-to-day lives. You know, as an example, the Bible, Bible today's going to be a rainy day. Did you know that? I hope you did. Not yet. You'll get home before it comes. But the Bible hardly ever says something like, then it began to rain. How does the Bible say it? It's, it's much more something. Instead, it's, then God opened the heavens and sent the rain. Because the ancient peoples and Christians today believe that every circumstance is from God. That not one single sparrow that flies through the sky is forgotten by him, we read this past week. That the hairs on every head in this room and throughout the world are all numbered. And when you stop to consider the way the Bible speaks about him in this way, it really is quite stunning. But the doctrine of providence, what I want you to see this morning is the doctrine of providence also means that there's a certain way that God leads us. Not only that he's intimately involved, but that there's a certain way he leads us. There's a unique but consistent way that he is involved with us. And so the argument that David is making here is that you should trust God's providence in your life because you trust his heart for you. The reason you can trust his working things out in your life as he, as he orders and the circumstances of, of, of your days is because you know his heart and you trust his heart. And so that's what I'm laboring for. That's my goal. And here this week, we come to what, for me, is, I've said, it's, it's a series of arguments. So we've just kind of been going through the arguments in the psalm, and this really is, for me, probably the strongest argument yet for why you should trust his heart. In verse 3, we read, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, I usually try to ask some prompting question to set the sermon up at this point. But instead, this week, let me just make an observation. And the observation that, that I would like to make to you is this. At least from my own life, I've, I've learned that the people that I trust the most are the friends who, from experience, have loved me best when I am at my worst. So part of my story, uh, and I've been doing some, you know, some reading, learning, just, just trying to learn more about myself. Calvin said that the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self is connected. And so, 
you know, just trying to learn more about myself, about my personality profile and, and these sorts of things. Uh, I, I'm scared to death of, of failing because, uh, at least this is what the books tell me, I, you know, uh, that somewhere along the way I began to believe that only winners are worthy of love. Okay, now I know that sounds pathetic. That's something a loser would say, uh, and I don't lose, so it's hard to even admit that. But um, I have to talk about myself like that to model for that for you and to give you permission to talk about yourself like that, but I'm in public, so it's a little scary. And so um, my experience, in many ways, looking back on my life, has been uh, being prized for my achievements. So I work hard. This is what I do, right? I, I suspend my emotions and desires and focus all of my energy on the goal, and I make the grade. I mean, I, for the most part of my life, I've gotten the job done, and then people smile, and they tell me I'm wonderful, and it's great. Except it's not. And the reason it's not is because there's something profoundly broken about this way of relating uh, to other people. Because if love and acceptance, as I somehow, somewhere, sometime came to believe were really dependent upon success, well, then what's the problem with that? Well, then I'm, only, I'm always only one failure away from losing the thing that I need. And so what people with my personality do, maybe you're like me, what I'm learning, and this has been a hard lesson to learn, but what people with my personality and kind of my, my this little um, unique, you know, um, part of the brokenness of humanity, what we do is we lie. And the reason we lie is, you know, because, again, we're trying to manage, we're trying to manage, you know, the PR campaign. We lie because we, we, we want to always make things sound better than it is. So there's never, a re- what happens is, is because of this, there's never a real sense of connection. You know, because, because the relationship is based upon some falsehoods and some, you know, some shading of truth and, all, and you know, and all that kind of stuff. And that's, that's where the brokenness is. But every now and then, see, here's what God has done. Every now and then, despite all of my efforts, I just blow it big time. And it's the scariest thing in the world to me to do that. But I can tell you that the most redemptive moments in my life have been when people have met me in those places of failure and loved me well with forgiveness and and acceptance. And so the people that I really trust are the ones who have loved me best when I have been at my absolute worst. But here's the teaching of the psalm. In Psalm 23, this this verse, verse 3, if I could sum it up for you, really what God is saying, what David wants us to know about God here is he wants us to know that despite what your experience with people might be, it really is true that God loves you best when you're at your absolute worst. That's the teaching. And in order to believe that, you really have to see four things. And those, they're the four points of the outline that I've given you this morning. So you have that there in front of you. You have to see, first, God's definition of what's wrong with us. So his definition of sin, what sin really is. Secondly, you have to see his reaction to your sin. Thirdly, you, see, you have to see the solution that he offers you to your sin. And lastly, you really have to come to grips with his motivation for offering the solution that he does. And when you see those four things, his definition, his reaction, his solution to sin, and his motivation for all that he does in our lives as he pursues us, then you really will come to believe in some way, maybe a small way. 
that he maybe really does love you best when you're at your absolute worst. And so let's walk through those four things together this morning. Uh, They're all here, believe it or not, in in verse 3. And so we're just going to go one by one together first, beginning with what we learn here about how God defines sin. There's a definition of sin. So uh, look at look at the psalm again. David's saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. The Hebrew verb there, at the very beginning of the psalm, he restores my soul. Verse 3, it means, it's the verb shove, and it means to turn back or to return. So in this usage, what a better, a better translation here would be, he brings me back. That's what it means. And in nearly all the places in the, in, in the scriptures where the shepherd imagery is used to describe God's relationship with his people, there is the lost sheep and the searching shepherd. That really is the story that's being told. There's a sheep that has become lost, and the shepherd has to leave and go in search of the sheep. And, of course, the most obvious is in Luke 15, which we read a minute ago. And there Jesus is describing his mission to those that are upset about the people that he's spending time with. He's, he's explaining why his table is always crowded with the riffraff and the rabble. His incarnation, his coming into the world is described there as a shepherd who owned a hundred sheep, but one had become lost. And so the shepherd dropped everything and left the 99 to go in search of the one lost sheep until it was found. And as I said, the same storyline of lost sheep and pursuing shepherd is found in the other places in the Bible that that use the shepherd metaphor. Jeremiah 23, for example, you can look later, but it says this, verses 3 and 4, God says, I will gather my flock and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 34, it's the same way. Again, you can look at it later, but I'll read a little bit of it to you. Verse 11 and following says, my sheep were scattered with none to search or seek for them. Behold, I will search for my sheep and I will seek them out and I will rescue them from all of the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And it's, so there's this, there's this prevailing storyline that's being played out in all these places in the scripture and it's the same idea here in Psalm 23. It's a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. So when David says, verse, verse three, he restores my soul, He means, literally, that he was lost, and the Lord, his shepherd, came to his rescue. Because we know sheep are prone to wander, as the hymn we sing says. They easily get lost, and once they're lost, it's almost impossible for them to find their way back home by themselves. When a sheep realizes that it's lost, it will often try to hide in some cleft of rock or a ditch where uh, it thinks it's safe, but, but what, all it does is it gets itself stuck and it can't get out. So not being able to get itself out of the trouble that it gets itself in, a sheep will become afraid and start bleeding for help, which is a really bad thing. Why? Because then the wolves and the other animals that eat sheep hear this distressed call of the sheep and it calls the predators in. And what the Bible is saying is, that's you and me. Again, we're being insulted. We, we are like lost sheep. Listen, listen again to the prophet Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone, this is um, Isaiah 53, to his own way. We've turned everyone to his own way, and that is probably the best definition of sin in the whole Bible. Sin is turning to your own way. It is destructive self-determination. It is a stubborn commitment to, to doing what is right in your own eyes to your own disadvantage. It's leaning on your own understanding and not trusting God, as Proverbs 3 tells us we should, even when the distressing and disastrous results are self-evidence, which, Proverbs says, is the way of the fool. And yet we can't stop. There's a scene in The, uh, in the Hobbit where Bilbo and, and the company of dwarves that he is traveling with reach the Mirkwood and the Mirkwood is a deep, menacing forest full of dark magic, and they, they, there's no way around. They have to journey through it. And they're told um, by Gandalf and by others that there, there's a path that, that cut, that's cut straight through the forest. And on either side of the path, as they begin to journey, they realize that just a little ways off, it, the forest quickly grows terribly dark and dense, and it's covered with spider webs, and it's just menacing, but not the path because... There was a magic that made it so. And, and, and so before they entered the Mirkwood, Gandalf warned them that as long as they stayed on the path, they would be safe. But if they wandered from the path, they would never find it again and would become lost until the darkness that dwelt there caught up with them. Sin, it's a good analogy. Sin is leaving the path that God has laid out for you to keep you safe, to go your own way. God says... Sex only inside of marriage. He says, honor your father and your mother, teenagers. He says, forgive when you're wronged. Don't let a root of bitterness grow up. You know, he says, don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. That's the path. Just a few examples. Sin is leaving the path and going your own way. It's saying to God, thanks for the advice. I've got this. I don't need your help. I know better than you. I can figure it out on my own but thanks. And I'll tell you, I know, uh, I know someone's really in trouble. You, you want to know when, like, my pastoral radar goes off, that little beep, 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 beep thing? Well, you know, I know somebody's really in trouble when they, when they start making decisions on their own, uh, and you watch it happen all the time. People will pull away from community, and then they start to make really big life decisions. It's dangerous. But what we have to wrestle with is in our society... In our society, we celebrate people who break free from oppressive cultural norms to find their own truth. We hallow people with the courage to break free from biological assignment to create their own reality. And the mantra of our age is follow your heart, be true to yourself. It sounds so romantic, doesn't it? Do you know it's deadly? That's what the Bible's teaching. It's deadly. It's deadly because truth is not subjective. There is no such thing as my truth and your truth. There is only truth. We, we are not self-defined. Right and wrong are not social constructions. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death, Proverbs says. And we've forgotten that we're sheep and that turning to our own way is not the path to happiness and freedom. It is the road to destruction. Years ago now, um, NPR ran a story that referenced a number of studies done over the course of 100 years. It absolutely fascinates me, where subjects were blindfolded and then asked to walk in a straight line. Did you know it's impossible for human beings to be blindfolded and walk in a straight line? 
they, we literally, if you blindfold someone and ask them to walk in a straight line, they literally start to go in circles. Every time, without fail, the people ended up walking in circles. Now, one, one, one story in particular put people in a forest in Germany um, and asked them to walk in a straight line. They, they did the study on two different occasions. On the first day, uh, it was overcast, excuse me, on the, well, on the first day, it was overcast and foggy, and uh, there was no way to make out any fixed reference point in the sky or on the horizon. So you couldn't see, like, the sun. You couldn't see a mountain off in the distance that you could kind of keep heading towards. The second time, they did it on a day that was bright and clear, and, uh, and you, could, you, know, you could pick out some fixed reference point and kind of keep heading in that general direction. And what they found was that on the cloudy day, uh, the people that, they, that were part of this study, they just went around and around in circles and got lost. But when they could see the sun or a particular landscape and go towards that, they could, they could maintain a relatively straight line. Now, these are, these, are, these are the words from the article. Listen to this. Just, I mean, this is NPR, guys. Listen to this, okay? It's, it's fascinating. Here, here's what they said. Humans apparently slip into circles when we can't see an external focal point like a mountaintop, a sun, or a moon. Without a corrective, listen, our insides take over and there's something inside of us that won't stay straight. And what's fascinating is in the article, they're saying, what do you think this is? Why? I mean, why is this? I mean, isn't that amazing? And everybody's kind of, what do you think? The Bible has a very clear answer, sin. There's no better illustration for the problem with turning to your own way. We need, we need an external point of reference to guide us or we quickly become lost. Because there is something inside of us that won't stay straight. And so we see the definition of sin. But secondly, let's keep going through this text. Secondly, and, and more importantly, we see God's reaction to our sin. So if this is true of us, if this is what we do, then how does God respond to our sin? And here we see David singing. He, verse, 20, verse 3 of Psalm 23, he restores my soul. So What's, what this means is, is God is like the shepherd in Luke 15 who noticed the sheep had gone missing and dropped everything and hurried out into the countryside to find the lost sheep, much like the father in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son who did not wait for his wayward son to come home but, but went running to meet him on the road as soon as he saw him on the horizon. And when you see the shepherd leaving the flock to go after the one that was lost, and when you see the father bounding down the road, eager to get to his son to embrace him. What do you think? I'll tell you what I think. I picture the father, and in my imagination, you know, and I think, man, he must really love him. And I think that's the, part, that's the point of the story. The commentators note that the verb tense in Psalm 23.3 is very specific, that it puts all of the emphasis on what God does, that once a sheep becomes lost, it cannot find its way back home, as we've said, and so the shepherd must find it. So all depends upon the shepherd's love and, determine and de- determination and strength. Now, Philip Keller, in his book on Psalm 23, paints a very helpful picture of the cast sheep. So you might be familiar with uh, the verse in Psalm 42, 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? You with me? Why are you so downcast, my soul? And he says, uh, there's a, there's a sh- that's shepherding terminology because there's, a, there's such thing as a cast sheep. 
And a cast sheep is a sheep that has fallen down, and somehow this happens. Somehow it, it got turned over. It maybe, it maybe fell down, or it, it got lopsided, or lost its balance and turned over on its back. And the problem is when a sheep gets turned over on its side or on its back, it, it literally physically can't get itself back up again. It just lays there on its back with its feet in the air, flailing away, frantically struggling to stand up. Can't you picture it in your mind? But it can't. It can't. The weight distribution makes it unable to pull itself back up, so it just lays there completely helpless, vulnerable to attack, and close to, to death. And gases actually begin to build up in, in its stomach, so within hours or maybe a day or so, it will die. Unless, what? Unless the shepherd comes. And that's the picture of you and me. Now you understand the shepherd in Luke 15 counting his sheep, don't you? And noticing one is missing. This is what shepherds do all the time. Philip Keller talks about it in his book about this incessant anxious counting of the flock to make sure none were missing all the time. You're always counting the sheep because if, if one was found missing, then there's the agonizing search. He goes on to describe the process of restoring the sheep that the shepherd I mean, this is beautiful. The shepherd must tenderly roll the sheep over onto its side to relieve the pressure that has been built up by the gases in the stomach. Then straddling the sheep, he has, to, he has to, you know, grab it and kind of hold it on its legs, begin to massage the legs so the blood will begin to circulate again in the legs of the sheep. And then he lets it go and it probably wanders off and falls down again and he has to go get it and kind of, he has to nurse it back to health. It's so tender. It's so gentle. And Keller writes, he says, many people have the idea that when a child of God fails, when he is frustrated and helpless in a spiritual dilemma, that God becomes disgusted, fed up, or even furious with him. But this simply is not so. Listen, he says, one of the revelations of the heart of God given to us by Christ is that of himself as our shepherd, that he has the same identical sensations of anxiety, concern, and compassion for cast men and women as I have for cast sheep. This is precisely why he looks on people with such pathos and compassion. It discloses the depths of his understanding of undone people to whom he eagerly came and quickly ready to help, to save, to restore. See, all of the stress in, in this verse is on God's action because Salvation is what he does. We do nothing, he does everything. Listen, here's the teaching. We don't go looking for him. We are the cast sheep who is turned to our own way, lying on our back, close to death, our legs flailing helplessly in the air, and our only hope is that he come looking for us. Salvation is by grace. Jesus sought me while a stranger wandering from the fold of God. And having that image in your imagination is the key to understanding his love. Do you know he came all the way to you? You with me? He came all the way to you. It's easy to love someone when it's 50-50. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. But God's love is uneven. It's one-way love. He does it all. We do nothing. His love is Calvary love. In order to rescue us, Isaiah 53 said, we read it. Jesus had to take our sin upon himself and endure the wrath of God 
in our place. He got all of the bad stuff that we deserved and we get all the good stuff that he deserves. And so if you're a Christian, it is his love for you that makes you so, not your love for him. It's his righteousness, not your righteousness. The shepherd in Luke 15 had every right to be angry and frustrated when he, when he found the sheep that had caused him so much trouble, but there's no hint of that. What is the note of the, of the story there in, in Luke 15? Joy! He rejoiced. He threw the sheep on his, on his you know, shoulders and came home and he threw a party because there was joy, the sheep who caused him so much trouble. There's no hint of anything but joy. And so, Christian, when you are at your worst... Do you believe that God is not frustrated with you? He's not rolling his eyes at you? He, when you stubbornly disregard him and spit in his face, he doesn't throw up his hands in exasperation. When you walk away from him, he doesn't sulk. What does he do? When you walk away from him, he goes after you. When you're at your worst, it doesn't dampen his love for you. It activates his love. It increases his love. He loves you all the time, but he loves you best when you're at your worst. Do you see that? You see his reaction, but thirdly, we got to keep moving. Third, so we see the definition of sin and we see the reaction of the pursuing shepherd. And, but third, there's a solution that he gives to us here. That he loves you best when you're at your worst, but he doesn't leave you there, the psalm teaches. David goes on to sing, verse 3, he restores my soul he leads me in paths of righteousness. And that word righteousness there is the most important. It means, <laughs> it's not rocket, it means right. Or it means straight. It refers to something that has been rightly ordered and, and is working properly. So Hugo Cabre in, in the movie uh, by his name said that everything has a purpose, even machines, clocks, tell times, train, train. Trains take you places. They do what they're meant to do. Maybe that's why broken machines make me so sad, he said. They can't do what they're meant to do. Maybe it's the same with people, he went on to say. If you lose your purpose, it's like you're broken. So what is God's solution to sin? It's much more than forgiveness. We're told here he means to restore us to righteousness. Because we keep going astray to our own way, we are like the broken machines unable to do what we've been designed to do. David is saying... That God comes to us, he picks up the broken pieces, and he begins to put us back together. We take a fish out of water, and it will flip and flop around on the ground. And, uh, and, and it would be impossible to pick it back up and to get him back into the bowl. But if you put the fish into the water, the same motion causes him to glide along effortlessly. Why? Because fish were made for the water, not for a puddle on the kitchen counter. He leads me in paths of righteousness means he gets me back in the water. You see that? He's getting me back in the water. Or go to the Tolkien illustration that I mentioned earlier. He puts me back on the path where I can travel safely through the dark forest. The paths of righteousness, of course, are his commands. And his commands are right. They are the instructions for running the human machine. They revive the soul, we're told in the Bible. They make the wise the simple. They rejoice the heart. They enliven the eyes. They enlighten the eyes. And all that's from Psalm 19. So the idea is they're just like when someone has an accident or, or a stroke uh, or some kind of you know, ailment. And there are parts of the body that, that, as a result, 
fail to function. And then the recovery, if you've ever walked with somebody through that, the recovery is that the different parts of the body that have been affected start to wake up and be reanimated. They, you know, they were dead and they start to work again. So, you know, whether it's the speech or it's the side of the body or whatever, and that is the picture that God's commands, God's commands jumpstart your heart. They open your eyes so you can see, so that your eyes work again. They restore the health that sin has stolen from you, but not on their own. Because look what David says here. He says, he leads me in paths of righteousness. And Philip Keller makes the point that sheep must be managed and handled. If they're left to themselves, they fall into the same old patterns of behavior. Uh, They prefer well-worn places and favorite spots. And so if you don't pay attention to them, they'll lay down in these well-worn places that are full of parasites. And they they settle back into destructive and unhealthy patterns of behavior. And so the shepherd must keep them on the move. From pasture to pasture, there has to be a plan of action. The the shepherd has to drive the sheep along. In other words, what David is saying here is we, like sheep, need to be led in paths of righteousness. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And to be led there means not just revelation from the outside, but also transformation from the inside. And so commentators say it's pretty clear there's a connection here between Psalm 23 In Ezekiel 36, for example, and there in Ezekiel 36, it really is a marvelous passage where God is talking again to the lost sheep of Israel who have been exiled from their homeland to wander in in foreign countries under oppressed leadership and authority. And here's what he says to his people as as these lost sheep that, that he's coming to. He says, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean Listen, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove your heart of flesh. Excuse me, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So he leads me in paths of righteousness, David says. God's solution to our waywardness is to work in us willing hearts to obey his commands. The prophetic promise of the new covenant, the gospel, was that the law would no longer just be written on tablets of stone, but written on our hearts. In other words, that we would live with a new internal compulsion towards obedience. Parents, doesn't that encourage you? That that's the work God means to do in your children? Because it's what you want to happen in your children. That that he is working in us a new internal compulsion towards obedience before we were turned away to our own way. But now, as he begins to rescue us and save us and massage us back to health, he's turning us towards obedience. So God's solution to sin is not just to forgive it. Isn't that good news that he forgives our sins? You know what's even better news? He's not just forgiving our sins, he's overthrowing our sins. To bring us back from wrong paths to put us on right path. So if you've been a Christian for a very long time, you know that this isn't a one-time thing. It's a constant process of rediscovery and realignment. And so I've given this sermon title, if you notice there, uh, the sermon, the title of repenting life, the repenting life, because the Hebrew verb shuv means to repent. He restores my soul means he brings me back, which could also mean he causes me to repent. So Luther said all of life is repentance. It is the constant monitoring of myself to see where I have turned to my own way and to realign my heart with the work of the good shepherd. So I'm constantly leaving the path and wandering off into the woods. And then he is constantly 
seeking me. And, then I ha- and so I have to constantly be seeking to find my way back by God's grace and to continue on the paths of righteousness. And, and that really is the work that God is doing here. So you see his definition and his reaction and his solution. But lastly, and quickly now, we're also told his motivation here that he does all of this. Why? He leads me in paths of righteousness, you say it, for his namesake. Now, what does that little phrase mean there on the end? For one, it means that God loves God the most. And that's a good thing, that God is motivated in all he does by his glory. And that's a good thing. And I could, I could point out so many places in the scriptures that teach this, but for the sake of time, uh, we're going to move on this morning, and just I'd like I have three reasons why it's a good thing that God does this and does all things for His namesake. Uh, three reasons, very quickly, and the first is uh, that God loves God more than He loves you, and God loves God more than He loves me. Just like I should love God more than I love me. When I love me more than I love Him, all kinds of terrible things happen. And if He were to love me more than He loved Himself, He would be an idolater like me. And I can't begin to imagine the horrors that might be unleashed upon the world if He allowed me to be the center of the universe like I want to be. Not to mention, it's not good for my heart. It's good for my heart to remember that God doesn't do things for my sake, but that I should do all things for His sake. He is the center, not me. So it is good news that God, not me, is at the center of God's heart. Secondly, it's good news that God loves God most because his name is on the line with you and me. In Ezekiel 36, as I mentioned already, he said to the lost sheep of Israel, you profane my name among the nations to which you came, so I will vindicate the holiness of my great name and the nations will know that I am the Lord. Here's what that means. He's saying Israel's sin and their exile made him look bad. And not out of some petty sense of, you know, not wanting, not wanting people to think badly of him, but because it is good that we honor and glorify him, he rescued them in order to rescue his reputation. Do you know what that means? It means God will always rescue you, not only because he loves you, but because he loves himself most. And his reputation is at stake in you. God means for people to see your beauty, the beauty of your character, the beauty of your work, the beauty of your repentance, and give him glory. And that's why he's motivated to say, but lastly, it's good news that God loves God most because it means that his actions are based on his character, not my performance. That his decisions and plans are based on the constancy of his love and faithfulness to me and not the fluctuations of my love and faithfulness to him. God loves you. Why? Because he loves you. That's good news. He loves you not for any reason other than that he loves you. He loves you, but not because you are great or smart or holy. He loves you because he loves you. And the reason it's good news is if his love for you was based upon something in you, then it might turn on and off. But if he loves you for his own sake, if he loves you just because he loves you, then even when you're at your worst, you can be absolutely confident that he will love you best. That's the teaching. Put your life in his hands. Let's pray. So, Father, now as we sing these last uh, couple of songs, thank you for this great word that you've given to us. 
Um, it is like it is like breath to oxygen starved souls. It is like water. It is like water to desert traveling people who are lost and dying of thirst. Thank you that you are so good to us and how you reveal your heart to us because you know. You know our propensity to not trust you and because we don't trust you to turn aside to our own way to try to take care of ourselves, to try to make life happen on our own. And we're, we're, leaving, we're leaving the only hope we have when we turn to our own way. We're leaving the only source of life we're turning to broken cisterns that do not hold water for the, the very water we're dying to drink. And so thank you for your faithfulness to gently come to us, massage us back to health, to put us back on paths of righteousness. And may that knowledge just create in us. Uh, if, if, if someone's here this morning and they don't know Jesus, may it be the very first turning of their heart towards you to know that in their wandering and sin, you are not angry, you, you come after them. But even for those of us who've been walking long in the faith, may, may this knowledge be the very, the very part of our hearts turning again and again, over and over and over back to you in repentance and faith, forsaking the ways of living that hold no life for us and turning back to the paths of righteousness that you might be truly honored and glorified in us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, you're here, maybe you're seeking him. Here's, here's, what, uh, here's what, the, what we talked about this morning means. If you are here uh, and you don't know him but you're seeking him, that means he's already been seeking you. So you don't have to worry about whether he wants you to come to him. He's, he's, already, he's, he's arranging it for you to come to him. So just turn your faith towards him. Turn, give, give your life into his hands. But here, if you're a Christian and you're here and you wonder, oh, I've messed up. I just can't seem to get over the hump in some of these areas of my life. I can't seem to get myself out of the fix that I always seem to find myself in. Don't doubt his compassion and love for you. He is the faithful shepherd who means to follow you into your very worst so that he can love you best and put you back on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's what these words mean here in the benediction. So receive them uh, and allow these words to cause your heart to draw near to him. Okay, he's drawn near to you. Now, now you respond by drawing near to him. So reach out and take hold of these words by faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.